0: All right, Danny, I appreciate, man, you were hustling right there. You're going back and forth. Jason's legs are twice as long as yours. He could have made it in half the time. You just make the short guy do that. That's, that's messed up. Well, as I said a second ago, if you're just joining us, uh, we're in uh, part three of a series about trophies and, and the, the things in our life that we're all chasing hard after, talking about why we're chasing them, the problems that it causes for us in our life, and then ultimately what we can do about it. Uh, the truth is, like we're all wired differently. Like I, I'm one of those people that I, I'm not a morning person, but uh, I love sleeping in. Any, any of my my sleeper inners like they like to sleep late okay that's what i'm talking about my wife hansie she could not sleep in if her life depended on it uh but i absolutely love it now it's not like it used to be when i was younger sleeping in for me now means like eight o'clock like if i make it to eight i'm doing pretty good uh but i man, back in the old days remember when you're in your 20s, like you could sleep till like 10 30 11 11 30 tw- anybody no nobody nobody remember that uh, but still, sleep until 8, man, that's amazing. I, I love not setting an alarm and just sleeping until I wake up. Uh, those, aren't those the amazing mornings? And I know once you have kids, that kind of goes out the window because you got to, well, that's why she gets up. Because she's got to go handle the kids and she can't handle the thought. I'm like, they're fine. We'll see what happens once we get up. Uh, but but doesn't, it, this, doesn't that seem like one of the things that you take for granted when you're a kid? That you can get all the sleep that you want. It seems like one of the cruelest ironies of life once you have kids is that people who want to go to bed have to put the people who don't want to go to bed to bed. Uh, and, and there's a lot of stuff like that, right? When you're a kid, like you don't fully appreciate how simple and how great you have it when you're a kid. Like having summers off, wouldn't that be amazing? Like every summer, you know, like I don't know what your kids were like, but when, you know, my, I have, you know, when my kids, were younger. It was like, third grade was a beast, man. I need three months off. You're just like, what? Third grade. Trust me, it gets a little harder. I mean, don't you wish you could do that? Like, man, closing that sale or landing that client or finishing that project was a beast. I need three months off. My uh, my niece, um, Briley, she, when she was younger, she's graduated now, but when she was younger, uh, her parents were pushing her to try different things and whether it was gymnastics or playing the piano or all kinds of different stuff. And uh, and, and they made her at least try it. And so every time I saw her, she was doing something differently. And, and so I'd be like, hey, Bradley, what happened? Like, I thought you were doing gymnastics. And and no matter what it was that she tried when she decided she didn't want to do it, she would always say that she had retired from it. And, yeah, I, re- I retired from playing the piano or I retired from doing gymnastics. And wouldn't that be nice? Like, I, I don't know about you, but I have some things that I don't like that i'd like to retire from how about you like i tried paying taxes but it didn't really work out i think i'm gonna go ahead and retire from that like i gave laundry a good solid try turns out it's not for me i'm retired from laundry or when you like to tell your kids sometimes like i'd love to cook for you i really would but i retired from the kitchen the kitchen is closed now, I know not all of us are parents, but even if you're not, you probably remember doing this to your parents. Like, like have you ever had a kid melt down on you? Or did you do this when you were a kid? Because like, they had, your parents had the nerve to ask you to just help, to do something simple like make your bed or empty the dishwasher. I mean, it doesn't feel like if you're a parent, like a giant chunk of parenting is just fighting with your kids to get them to do anything productive at all to contribute in any way. To being alive. Yes, thank you. One person. That is a tired mom right there. She's just just like validated. She's going home validated. The truth is like while that impulse looks differently for us as adults, it it isn't really something that we shake very easily, especially in our culture. I mean, let's be honest. We all have a really long list of things that are on our to-do list that have been there for a while. And if you're one of those strange alien creatures that doesn't, I guess this doesn't apply to you, but the reason why we have a lot of stuff on our to-do list, the only reason that they're there and not done is because, well, we're avoiding doing them as long as we can, and it's not like they're all particularly hard or difficult. It's just we don't want to do them because they're annoying or they're boring or they're frustrating, and we'd much rather be you know, having fun and relaxing and taking it easy do you ever feel like the stuff that you have to do keeps interrupting and getting in the way of the stuff that you actually want to do? You ever feel like that? It feels like that's all of being an adult. So we, what do we do? We actively avoid of much of the stuff that we know we want to do or we should do that we have to do. We kind of avoid as much of it as we can. See, I may not know you all that well, but I'm going to and I may not know you at all, but I'm gonna go out on a limb and I'm gonna say that I, I think I know something about you. I think I can say that you at some point in your life, some level in your life, you're just comfortable, because there's things that you want to do, there's things that you know you should do that you're just avoiding doing. And you may not be as comfortable as you know as much as you wanna be. You may you maybe not be comfortable in all the ways that you wanna be, but but you are. And, and I know that about you because I am too, because we can't help it. We love it. That's the way we're sort of built and structured. In fact, in our culture, comfort is one of the main organizing principles of life in our culture. And maybe the other big one is safety. Like we want to be comfortable and we want to be safe. I mean, and if you don't believe me, just... Listen, if you're even a part of a church, just listen to the things we pray for. Almost right out of the gate, it's always we pray for safety. Let's just pray that they would be safe. Let's pray that they're safe. Let's pray that we're all safe. Let's pray that God will bless this food. It doesn't make us fat. But also, let's pray that we're safe. Why? Because comfort and safety are the two big organizing principles of life in our culture. Think about all the most popular products and services, all of your favorite things that you enjoy, whether it's Netflix or flying first class. Isn't that amazing? I've only done it once, but it was amazing. Or Wi-Fi or deep fried Twinkies or sweatpants or Amazon or DoorDash or yoga pants or Crocs. All of those things have one thing in common. They were designed to cater to our unquenchable need for pleasure and comfort and ease. I have a TV. I got a TV this last year because 52 wasn't big enough. I needed to go bigger. You guys know what I'm talking about. So I got a bigger TV. I got it from Costco. Every time I turn my TV on and I go to search for something on a streaming thing, my TV keeps prompting me to... To not go through the hassle of moving my thumb and clicking the thing to search, but to just speak into the microphone, speak into the remote, and it'll find it for me. And I'm like, I don't know, I think my thumb can handle it, moving it around. Now, there's nothing wrong with any of those things. I certainly reserve the right to use and enjoy all of them, all of them except Crocs. I have a thing with Crocs. If you get to know me, I have a jihad against them. And that's because I haven't completely given up in my life. I still have a little bit of dignity left. So I won't wear them. And I'm not saying I'll judge you if you wear them. Okay, absolutely. I, actually, I will judge you harshly every time you do. Don't wear them in public. You can wear them around the house. But, but, but listen, If the seat's a little too hard or the temperature's a little too hot or a little too cold, if the music's a little too loud, if the food isn't exactly what we wanted, how we wanted it, if the schedule's running two minutes behind, right, we complain and things are adjusted, you know, to make us more comfortable, to accommodate our every wish and whim, And what's interesting is that while we definitely live in a time of the greatest affluence and opportunity, and we're more comfortable than any human beings have ever been in all of history, the impulses to want to keep seeking that out and finding that they aren't really, really new or unique to us. In fact, it's been a part of the human experience from the beginning. Now, maybe you're thinking, I don't I don't know that I really see a problem with any of this. Like, and, and even if it is a problem, it seems like there's a lot bigger problems that we should be dealing with, especially in church. Like, don't, don't we have bigger, doesn't God have bigger fish to fry than whether or not like I wear Crocs or I'm a little comfortable? And I would say, no, not on the Crocs one. That, that one's we got to deal with. <laughs> but, but I actually think it is a big deal. And I want to try to convince you this morning that, that this never ending drumbeat towards comfort is actually poisoning our lives in ways that we don't really see. And at its core, it's deeply spiritual. So a couple of weeks ago, I introduced you to a guy in the Old Testament named Solomon, and he was a king in Israel. He was a man of unparalleled wealth, really powerful prestige. Toward the end of his life, he began to write about his experiences and trying to leverage all of that wealth and all of that power to figure out how to have the best life, what life is really about. And he then had some really, really interesting things to say about what he discovered. So I wanted to start in the scriptures this morning by reading from Ecclesiastes chapter two. And he wrote these words towards the end of his life. Ecclesiastes chapter two, we're gonna read excerpts uh, from chapter two, beginning with verse one. This is what he said. He says, I said to myself, come on, let's try pleasure. Pleasure let's look for the good things in life but i found that this too was meaningless and so i said laughter is silly what good does it seek what good does it do to seek pleasure and then and then he says this after much thought i just decided to cheer myself with some wine isn't that how we are? Like, I don't, I'm going to try this thing. I'm going to try to have it the best. And then you start kind of thinking about life and how challenging it is. And you're just like, you know what? This is a lot of work. I need another cup. I need another glass of wine. Let's just, let's just relax, everybody. Feels like we're getting worked up about this thing. Let's, let's have some wine. Verse four, he says, I also tried to find meaning by building huge homes for myself and by planting beautiful vineyards. And I I made gardens and parks and filled them with all kinds of trees. And I collected great sums of silver and gold, the treasure of many kings and provinces. I hired wonderful singers, both men and women, and had many beautiful concubines. I had everything a man could desire. If you don't know what a concubine is, it was somebody in this period of human history where it was like a step below a wife, but you weren't a slave. And so you were there for companionship and to have sex with the man and to bear him children. And so he's saying, I had many beautiful concubines. He says, I had everything a man, anything I wanted, I had everything a man could desire. Verse 10, anything I wanted, I would take it. I desired myself no pleasure. Verse 11, but as I looked at everything I had worked so hard to accomplish, it was all so meaningless, like chasing the wind. There was nothing really worthwhile anywhere. Now, don't you hate it when people talk like this, when people who have money and stuff and have had experiences and had all that pleasure, all the stuff that like we are all chasing at some level in our life don't you hate when the people who have done been there and done that they just start talking about how, how how it's all just empty and meaningless and you're just like i don't know man like maybe it's you like i'd like to give it a shot i'd like to have a little bit bigger house these singers you speak of i'd like to have a choir just following me around singing like performing a a soundtrack to my life that would be pretty amazing See, the the pursuit of this particular trophy, it creates all kinds of tension and angst for us. And you can obviously feel it in what Solomon wrote. It creates tension in our work because we start to think of work as this necessary evil that we just work so we can have money, so we can buy stuff and be more comfortable and have more experiences and indulge. And just that's the only reason we work. It's just a necessary evil. And we want to stop doing it as soon as we possibly can. There's the tension of paying bills and juggling responsibilities because we're always striving for that next purchase or that next trip or that next gadget or experience. So that next moment that we can have a time where we can just escape, right? It creates tension in our relationships because we often end up using people for our own ends or at the very least, we neglect the people that we love the most that we're working so hard and striving so hard for to to raise the level of comfort and ease in their life. But the comfort also creates, the pursuit of this also creates deep tension in our own hearts. Like, I'll just speak for myself. Like, I want to be thin, but I also love tacos. I want to be a great dad, but also I'm tired a lot and I want to check out a lot of the time. I want to show people how much I love them and care about them by serving them. But if I'm being honest, I also secretly want people to serve me. I want to live a life of crazy faith that honors God, but I'm also scared and full of doubts about him and I kind of just want to live for myself. I I want my life to make more of a difference, but I have lots of excuses why it doesn't. I want to live a life of selflessness, but it's hard because I mostly think about myself and my comfort and my desires. See, it turns out we consume and crave comfort as if our very lives depend on it, which is... Why we've all had that fantasy about winning the lottery, right? Ever just made a list of things that you'd do, stuff you'd buy, places you'd go, people that you would cut out of your life, stuff you'd stop doing if you just hit the lottery? I, I have that fantasy, but mine's much more about whew, we could get a church building and I could stop unloading the truck every Sunday. Because the default goal in our culture, right, is to get to retirement as fast and as young as you can so you can finally do what you've always wanted to do, which is nothing. And and so in our culture, those are the stories that get told. Those are the stories that get lifted up. Those are the examples that get held up. And those are the, when we read in magazines and we read stuff magazines who reads magazines when you read online when you look at posts when you watch stories and you go on social media the stories that get pushed all the way to the top all the time is like look at how young this person is look at how rich they are look at how they got to retire and they don't do anything and you're just like i wanted to get that's where we wanted that's that's the goal that's the goal But Solomon, who had been there and who had done that, is like, it's not as great as you'd think. It's really, really fleeting. I actually think he would go, no, no, it's worse than that. Look at how he sums it up in verse 17 of chapter 2. He says, so I came to hate life. Just let that sink in for a second. After everything he described that he did before, everything that he had, he says, so I came to hate life. Life, because everything is so troubling. Everything is so meaningless. It's like chasing after the wind. And when I read that, I thought, oh, you poor thing. That cushy life with all the best food. And the best homes and the best trips and the best entertainment and the most sex with the most beautiful people. That must have been so hard for you, Solomon. Which is kind of a normal way for us to react, right? But we've also known people with pretty amazing lives who hated their life because they had no meaning or satisfaction in any of it. There's another guy in the Old Testament. His name was Caleb. And he's kind of the antithesis of everything we just read from Solomon. And I actually want to spend a few minutes looking at Caleb's life. So check this out. In Joshua chapter 14, beginning with verse six, This is part of Caleb's story. It says, now the people of Judah approached Joshua at Gilgal and Caleb said to him, you know what the Lord said to Moses, the man of God at Kadesh Barnea about you and me. I was 40 years old when Moses sent me to explore the land and I brought him back a report according to my convictions. But my fellow Israelites who went up with me made the hearts of the people melt in fear. I, however, followed the Lord, my God, wholeheartedly. So on that day, Moses swore to me, the land on which your feet have walked will be your inheritance and that of your children forever because you have followed the Lord, my God, wholeheartedly. So this is a huge moment. And if you're not familiar with the story, let me give you some backstory that ha- that led to this moment. So God's people had left Egypt, left slavery in Egypt, God had promised them to establish them as a people and as a nation in a a land that was specifically for them. And he had moved them into the land that he had promised them. And in this particular moment, they're dividing it up. And, And Caleb is making his case for the area of land that he feels like belongs to him. And so he starts by reminding Joshua of the story of the two of them from years before. If you want to read it, it's an incredible story. Numbers chapter 13 and 14. You just go back and read it this week. I promise you, you'll, you will not regret it. Go read the, their story. So, As they're moving, before they move into the promised land, as they get there, Moses sends out one leader from each of the 12 tribes of Israel to go and spy out the land that God had promised them. And Joshua and Caleb were two of those 12. They were chosen as leaders from their tribes to go in this delegation to go in and spy out the land. And all 12 of them came back and 10 of them gave a very accurate description of reality. They said, look, the land is amazing It's full of milk and honey, just like God said. But there's one tiny little detail that God forgot to mention. He forgot to mention that there's also some really big giants there. God conveniently left out that detail because the land is awesome, but the giants are not awesome. In fact, we look like grasshoppers in comparison to them. So it's a no from me, dog. We shouldn't go. So they all talk, they all have the same story, but then Joshua and Caleb speak up, and they're like, God was right, the land is rich with milk and honey, and these other 10 guys are right too, it's full of giants, and yes, God did leave that detail out, and no, it's not going to be easy, but these guys are wrong. We should definitely go and take it. We should, it belongs to us. We need to go in there and take what belongs to us. Isn't it crazy how people can see the exact same thing that they can step into the exact same moment and come to completely different conclusions based on what they saw. Their reports were the same. Joshua and Caleb, it wasn't like they were like, there are no giants there. It's just milk and honey. They weren't denying that there were giants there. See, you should actually be skeptical of following people who only see the milk and honey and deny that there's giants because those people are not being honest. People who only see the good and deny the problems eventually get crushed by the problems. But you also shouldn't follow people who see the milk and honey, but only focus on the giants. Because people who see the good but only focus on the problems, they live in fear, and they never they never end up going where God wants to take them. Because they're always just like, oh, it's too big. We can't do it. It doesn't, ah, oh, it should have been easy. We even say that if you're a follower of Jesus. If God wants it to happen, it'll happen. It'll just be easy. And so this is what happens. Caleb and Joshua are like, yes, there are giants, but we can do this. What's wrong with you guys? We could do this, but all the people were afraid and they believed the other 10. And so they chose comfort and safety over following and trusting God. And as a result, every single person in that generation grew up and grew old and lived out their lives and died having never received what God had promised them. All of them, except for two, Joshua and Caleb. And so now Joshua and Caleb are having this conversation years later when they're on the other side of all of that because the next generation grew up and they went in and fought the battles that their parents were supposed to fight. And now Joshua is the leader and he's dividing up the land for all the people. And you get, this, you get the sense in this point in the story that he's trying to do his boy a solid, right? Have you ever had a relationship like that where you had each other's back no matter what? You you had shared and enjoyed some life. You had all the inside jokes. You have all the stories. But you'd also been through some wars together. You'd been through some difficult challenges together. And, and, And that's the kind of relationship that Joshua and Caleb had. So Joshua's trying to hook a brother up. He's trying to give him part of the land where there's already peace, where it's already been conquered. But Caleb isn't having it. And he's reminding him of the story. And look at what he says next. Joshua 14. He says, now then, just as the Lord promised, he has kept me alive for 45 years since the time that he said this to Moses while Israel moved about in the wilderness. So here I am today, 85 years old, and I'm still just as strong as the day that Moses sent me out. I'm just as vigorous to go out into the battle as I was then. I think he probably sounded like Clint Eastwood when he was saying this. And he's going, now give me this hill country that the Lord promised me that day. You yourself heard them. You heard that the Anakites were there and their cities were large and fortified, but I ain't scared because the Lord helping me, I will drive them out just as he said. And so he says to Joshua, Joshua, Look, I don't want the easy stuff, man. That's not what I signed up for. Give me the hill country that God promised to me back in the day. I've been waiting for this for 45 years, bro. You know the Anakites are there. You know the giants are there. I know they're there. You know their cities are large and fortified. And I just imagine, like, picturing this moment, I think he probably had, like, that weird, crazy old guy look in his eyes. But he's like... With God helping me, well, and plus, we don't know how. I mean, he's like, I'm just as strong as I was then. I'm like, bro, you 85, you might be strong. I'm just as vigorous for the battle. Mm, Are you though? He says, with God helping me, I will drive them out just like he said. After all, I can just picture him going like, after all, where's the joy in getting the milk and honey if there's no giants to bring down along the way? Where's the joy in having all the good stuff and the comfort if there wasn't some battle, some, something to conquer, some giants to actually overcome to get there? I mean, talk about the opposite of Solomon. I mean, this is a far cry from the things that Solomon was saying at the end of his life. But, but look at, I, I don't want you to miss this. Look at what happens next and look at the way it's worded. Joshua fourteen thirteen. it says, then Joshua blessed Caleb, and gave him Hebron. That's the hill country that he was wanting. Gave him Hebron as his inheritance. Joshua blessed Caleb. How did he bless him? See, the way a lot of us think about being blessed by God is like you're blessed when you're rich or you're blessed when you're successful or you're blessed when you're comfortable and when you're safe and when you're secure. That's the blessing. But he blessed Caleb by giving him the battle because he was the only one with the courage to go and take it on. See, what if, is it possible? What if God's blessing for your life is actually to send you into battle against some giants? What if he's not trying to make you more comfortable? What if he's actually trying to push you into some fights that you need to fight? The chapter ends like this. So Hebron has belonged to Caleb, son of Jephunneh, the Kenizzite ever since, because he followed the Lord, the God of Israel, wholeheartedly. And look at the little tag. Hebron used to be called Keriath Arba. It was named that after Arba, who was the greatest man among the giants, the Anakites. But Caleb took him down. Then, then the land had rest from war. Caleb followed the Lord wholeheartedly. I I love that. Interesting thing about Caleb the name means dog. Any Caleb's in the house? Probably not. Some of you guys have kids named Caleb. Whatever, and what's amazing is whatever reason his parents named him that, you know, that's been a popular name for a lot of years. The name Caleb, it doesn't have value for what it meant at his birth. It has value for what it meant after his death. He redefined his name. See, Caleb's life began with him being called dog, but it ended with him as a legend. It ended with him conquering giants. It ended with him battling for what God had promised him and then it says then the land had rest from war by the way Caleb was 85 85 y'all if you're not dead you ain't done there's some battles for you to fight there's still some giants for you to slay stop trying to ride off into the sunset and sip my ties all day long it's meaningless you will come to the end and go i hate my life, because there's no meaning in it. What if our obsession with comfort is actually keeping us from the very places that God is wanting to take us? This is such a powerful conversation for me because some people are just wired where they just naturally move and are drawn toward doing hard things. That is 100% my wife. I have to tell you, That is 100% not me. I want to relax. I'm built for comfort, not for speed. In every personality profile I've ever done in my life, I've done a whole bunch of them to get approved to plant churches and I've been assessed in every way, psychologically and emotionally and spiritually, multiple times and they all say the same thing. Yeah, so you're prone towards excess. You're, like, you have an addictive personality. You probably shouldn't ever drink because you'd just be a raging alcoholic. You're probably really comfortable and enjoy like, the finer things in life. I'm like, they don't have to be that fine. I can enjoy them. I can enjoy the less fine things in life. But here's the deal. I can tell you, in spite of all of that, I've already decided that I'm going to die with my sword in my hand. I've already decided that I want to be Caleb, that I want to be 85 going, bring on the giants. On my phone, I have this quote. I look at it at least once a week. It says, if at the end of my life, the only thing I've accomplished is a comfortable life, I have wasted my life. The same is true for you. See, Jesus invites us into something bigger, something more beautiful, something profound. God calls us to a deeper and more meaningful life, but it's not going to be a life of comfort and ease. In fact, when you read the story of Jesus, so many people decided not to follow him because they just decided it was too hard. And we, that's not something we talk about very often. See, we think because God is loving and compassionate because he's a God of comfort that he comforts us when we need comfort, that he'll never do anything to make us uncomfortable. But I have news for you. Nothing could be further from the truth. See, we often confuse doing what's comfortable with having peace. As if having peace means that we would never have to do anything hard or uncomfortable. We confuse playing it safe with having wisdom as if faith would never require us to risk anything or sacrifice anything or go out of our way to do anything for somebody else. But when you read the life of Jesus, he always calls us to a life that's bigger than us, that requires us to sacrifice, to love, to move in to fight some giants. In Matthew chapter 25, Jesus tells this really interesting story. It's about three men who are entrusted to work and conduct business on behalf of their master while he goes away. And he gives them different resources based on their abilities. What's interesting is that he doesn't give them any instructions before leaving about what he wants them to do. He just gives them resources to just go and do what he would do. And they have all kinds of freedom and opportunity to do something productive with what he gave them, which is exactly what two of them do. But for a variety of reasons, the third one, he doesn't. He doesn't waste it. He just saves it, and gives it back to the master when he gets back. The master has this really interesting reaction when he returns. He's angry with that servant. In fact, he calls him wicked and lazy. See, I, I think God actually has a completely different view than we do on what it's like to neglect our own potential, on us wasting our lives, on us wasting what he's entrusted to us. Often when we read that story, we only talk about it in terms of money or finances or abilities, but I, I think it's just so much bigger than that. That he's given you one life. You get one dance, one trip. There's no, there's not a warm up. What are you going to do with your life? And the master calls the other two servants in and he celebrates and commends them. And he says these words in Matthew 25, 21. One of the most famous declarations in the New Testament. He says, Well done, good and faithful servant. He celebrates them. He blesses them. Not because they did the same thing, because they didn't do the same thing, but because they did something. Well done, good and faithful servant. Not well said, not well felt, not well intended, not well thought, not even well believed. Well done. So here's what I think is the key to this whole thing. Because in this conversation about trophies that we've been talking about all month is this idea of idols. And we've just defined it this way. It's just anything or anyone that we look look to for the things that only God can give us. So back in July, we did a series about how to understand the Bible in four short words. And in that series, we talked about how when you go back to the very beginning, back to our origins, that we were created to live in relationship with God, that we were created to live in peace and connection with him and with each other. And when that was lost, when that connection was severed, there's all this noise, all this disconnection, all this dissatisfaction, all this longing in our souls. See, I, I think we constantly crave comfort to mask the weariness and the restlessness and the noise that's in our souls. One of my favorite movies is Tombstone. Um, If you haven't seen it, you should watch it. It is a fantastic movie. Val Kilmer, Kurt Russell, Wyatt Earp, Doc Holliday. There's a scene where Wyatt Earp and Doc Holliday are talking about a man named Ringo who's kind of the bad guy, he's the villain. And Wyatt asks Doc, he says, what makes a man like Ringo, Doc, what makes him tick, what makes him do the things that he does? And Doc Holiday says, a man like Ringo has got a great big hole right in the middle of him. He can never kill enough or steal enough or inflict enough pain to ever fill that hole. I think if we could go back and talk to Solomon, I think he'd actually say something similar to us about our own souls, that we can never buy enough, we can never consume enough, we can never vacation enough or experience enough or indulge enough, that there's not enough comfort, there's not enough adrenaline high, there's not enough pleasure or ease to fill or satisfy your soul but we just keep chasing it. And not only is it empty, it steals our life. Just ask Solomon. Which I think is one of the main reasons that there's this recurring theme in the scriptures about this idea and this conversation that God's having with us about rest. It's one of the, you can't miss it. It's, all the way through the Old Testament. It's all the way through the New Testament. God inviting us, having a conversation with humanity about rest. In fact, Jesus in Matthew chapter 11, verse 28 and 29, 30 says this. He says, come to me, all who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for." your souls for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. I I think part of the way that we chase comfort in our life, that we're just chasing that next thing and we're just consuming all we can and that next experience and that it's fine. None of that stuff's bad, but I think so often what's driving us is it's this proof that we actually haven't experienced what Jesus is inviting us to experience in these verses that our souls are just in angst and dissatisfied because we haven't stepped into a relationship with Jesus and experienced his rest for our souls. This is where I want to end because there's a difference between believing in God and coming to Jesus. Some of us believe in Jesus to save us, but we've never actually let his love satisfy our souls. And I just want you to know, that Jesus is here, God's here, and he's inviting you to himself, whether you are somebody who hasn't believed or somebody that's you've been a Christian your whole life, doesn't matter. He's inviting you to come into relationship this morning and experience rest for your souls. Hey, would you bow your heads with me?